Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming out on this uh, June morning for our Veterans Breakfast Club here at Christ United Methodist Church in Bethel Park. It's uh, wonderful to be back here again and to have such a large crowd. My name is Todd. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what we do because I know we have some new people here today, uh, but I, we always like to begin by, having, by singing the national anthem and back for a return performance is Walter Patton. Don't applaud, throw money. He does comedy as well as singing. And uh, he will lead us in the national anthem. He's a World War II Army Air Corps veteran. Uh, Walt, why don't you take it away? Before I get to the national anthem, I was going through some of my material at home, and I came across this uh, little, little saying that I thought you might like. Some of you might remember Rodney Dangerfield. Well, he said, there are certain signs when you're old. And I might tell you I'm old. Let me repeat, there are certain signs when you're old. And he says, I walked past the cemetery the other day, and two guys ran after me with shovels. So be careful when you're going past the cemetery. Let us sing the national anthem. Oh, say can Walter. Well, once again, my name is Todd DePastino, and I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, and we've been doing these events since September 2008, when we had 30 World War II vets come together at the Crown Plaza on Fort Couch Road, just a stone's throw from here, and we just shared the microphone and have them share some stories. 
we scheduled them again and invited them to bring their, their families and their, their friends, and we got 60 people. And we've just been rolling from there. Uh, last year, we did 40 breakfasts in about a dozen different locations around Western Pennsylvania. Uh, this year, we're on track to do 50 events, and that's largely because we started a project, the Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, which is directed by Nick Grimes. Nick, please raise your hand. Nick uh, joined our staff in April. He goes full-time on July 1st, so I'm really gonna work him hard. And uh, he is a, uh, a young Army veteran who served two tours in Afghanistan. And if you remember, the last breakfast we had here was kind of a magical thing. Nick served in the 10th Mountain Division, and we had two veterans, World War II veterans of the 10th Mountain Division here, and uh, the three of them sang the 10th Mountain Division anthem, didn't you, Nick? No, he didn't. He refused to do it. They all refused to do it. But they did share stories of, the, of their service in the 10th Mountain Division, and, uh, and that was just a great thing. Um, we are a nonprofit, and uh, we, our mission is really to encourage every veteran to share his or her story with the public. So these events are open to the public. Anybody can attend, and, I, and as I'm not a veteran myself, and as a non-veteran, I always occur, encourage other non-veterans to attend because I just get the sense that we get the most out of it. We learn the most. Uh, we learn the most from these stories. And so that's why we love to throw open our doors and have anybody attend. And if you know of anybody, who uh, you think would want to enjoy these programs, we really would encourage you to invite them to come. Uh, as a nonprofit, you know, we get buy-on donations and sponsorships and grants, and we have two wonderful sponsors this morning. Uh, the first is Asbury Heights in Mount Lebanon, and we have Gail Brankus and, and John Commissary as sponsors. And Gail, would you like to say a few words? Okay, thank you, Todd, and good morning, everybody. We're so happy to be here and representing Asbury Heights in front of this wonderful group. Personally, I've been involved in helping the Veterans Breakfast Club and Todd um, for just about the whole eight years that uh, they've been in existence. And it's been wonderful to see how much this group has grown and have spread the word to veterans from all eras. So uh, our hats off to you. Asbury Heights is a retirement community located in Mount Lebanon. Many of you are familiar with us. We've been part of the community for many years. We have independent living, personal care, memory support, nursing, and rehabilitation. So something for everybody. I happen to work in independent living, and it's a great lifestyle. You would have your own apartment or carriage home, one meal per day, housekeeping, maintenance, transportation, activities. So all you have to do is take care of yourself. But I know everybody here is thinking, I'm not ready yet, what's she talking about? So what we like to do is help people plan for the future. It's always good to have a plan. So if you would look on the table, we have a seminar coming up on August 4th called Downsizing your home, not your lifestyle. You're all welcome to attend that seminar where you can learn how to declutter your home if you're thinking about selling your home, good tips for uh, getting your best price, 
And then what do you do afterwards once your home is sold? So we're here as a resource to the community. I know many of you have visited us for events in the past, or maybe I've run into you in the community at some other events outside of the Veterans Breakfast Club. John and I are always available to answer questions that you might have, either for yourself or family members who may need some type of senior care. So Asbury Heights in Mont Lebanon is here for you. We're a community resource. And again, we salute you for your service today. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. We also have uh, two members of the Julian Gray Associates, and Julian is a board member of ours, and you guys have been great sponsors, Sue Cardello and Cindy Alvere. And Cindy, would you mind saying a few words? Thank you, Todd. I'm, I, I'm not going to turn circles this whole time to try to make eye contact, so I'll, I'll kind of <laughs> just stand here. But um, my name is Cindy Alvere. Uh, I'm first, I guess, in this venue, uh, the daughter of a World War II uh, 245th Engineering Battalion uh, Army Combat Veteran who I lost in 2001. Um, but I, I'm from the state of Indiana, so we did not receive assistance from an Asbury Heights, but I, as a child of a, a parent and a veteran who needed care as he reached his, his later years, I decided to go to law school to learn how to help veterans receive benefits to pay for that care. And throughout my parents' lives, neither of them received veterans' benefits, but now as a lawyer at Julian Gray Associates and a VA-accredited attorney, it is my passion to help families through what I went through as a child and to help veterans receive the support and respect and money from the, from the government that they earned through their willingness to serve. Um, and so at Julian Gray Associates, we assist our veterans in paying for care if and or when that time needs not uh, occurs, not only the veteran but a surviving spouse. And I think many of you may know or personally maybe be working with us. And my passion is to educate the families as to what's available from an advocate of the veteran, not an advocate of the government. Um, and so I also, and, and Sue Cardello uh, works in the social working realm. So for our veterans that, that do require care and have been placed in a residence, um, she actually knows that whole medical realm. Sue, if you want to stand up. So we just, I want to help, <laughs> and we want to help our veterans learn things that my parents neither received benefits, no one ever told us, no one ever informed us, we didn't know they existed. Our passion at uh, Julian Gray is to help our veterans um, be educated and learn, uh, and we thank you all for your service, young and old alike, um, and God bless you all. Thank you today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sydney. I did want to let you know that our newsletter has gone out. Our summer newsletter has gone out. You should have received it. If you didn't receive it, it's because we don't have your address. If we don't have your address, please do pick up a registration form where you could fill in your address and phone number and all that stuff and hand it into us so that you could get the next one. Uh, these have our schedule through September. We'll be publishing another one in September for our schedule through December. And um, oh, also, the printing company dropped off 3,000 copies on my front porch. 
So I want to get rid of them. And I brought six or 700 of them, and they're available on the tables out there. If you go to a library or American Legion, or if you go anywhere, we have people who take them to the VA and hand them out at the VA. Uh, if you go anywhere where you think anybody, people would come who might want to enjoy these events, please do take a stack. That's how people learn about what we do. That's how we get uh, new people coming and, and new phone calls coming in. And we have a lot of new people today. As you know, I'm always hawking merchandise. There's a great book, a biography of Bill Malden, right, Jim? Yes, there is. Have you read it? I have. You did read it? I did. And good or bad? Let, let me play Todd DePastino. Uh-oh. What inspired you to write this book? What inspired me to write the book was the cartoons, worthy cartoons, uh, that I found very fresh, original, still very funny, still relevant. And I was shocked that nobody had written, no scholar had really written a study of the cartoons and what they meant to GIs at the time in World War II. And then just the whole remarkable career. He was a crazy person. He had a charismatic life and just perfect for a biography. And uh, that's how I did it. How long did it take you to write this book? It took about uh, four years to research and write. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's an impressive piece of scholarship. Uh, it was an enjoyable read, and I congratulate you. It's a good book. Thank you, and you'll get your rebate for the breakfast later. <laughs> if, if you want a copy, it's 10 bucks, and uh, uh, I'll sign it for another 20. Um, we also have shirts and hats and stuff like that for sale, but I do want to push, not the book, but this magazine. Uh, Kevin Farkas and I put together this magazine last year. We, we sold out the first issue, and so we published a second one this year. And uh, these are just stories that have been told at our breakfast and in our interviews. Uh, they're absolutely wonderful. Pat Evie, your dad's story is in there. Uh, Jane Leffler's mother's story, remarkable story, is here. Uh, she was a prisoner of the Japanese. And, um, and just, just we, we, this issue is devoted, once again, to World War II stories, uh, but we're getting another publication ready for next year that will be uh, a more diverse representation of uh, the last stories from the last 70 years or so. If you want a copy of Veteran Voices, it's 10 bucks. And once again, if you want to support the Veterans Breakfast Club, that's a great way to do it, is to pick up uh, one of these magazines. I do want to let you know that... Uh, in addition to having these live storytelling programs, we also do interviews with veterans. We have done hundreds of them in the past several years through our partnership with Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. And the director of Veteran Voices is taking a picture of me right now. And he's Kevin Farkas, a Navy vet. And what we do is sit veterans down and we take 60 or 90 minutes with them and get their stories on camera. We edit them, put them up on our website, and then we also transfer them to the Heinz History Center. We'll, they'll be preserved and shared with the public. And uh, we're, 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 how many have we done, Kevin? How many of these interviews? 300 on record? 800 on record. 800 on record. Quite a few. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful archive. I do want to tell you, too, that Kevin is recording this event today. Uh, he records virtually all our storytelling programs. He edits them. So don't worry, John Bowen, if you say something, he could edit it out. <laughs> Um, he edits them, breaks them out into stories, and posts them on our website, veteransbreakfastclub.com. And we get a lot of people from around the world, really, who will 
uh, click a story and just listen to one three-minute story uh, or one 15-minute one story. Some veterans have longer stories than others. 11,000 downloads of these stories, for, of the breakfast stories. Wonderful. So uh, this story, and I, do, I am encouraging more and more people to do this. If you miss a breakfast and you're curious about some of the stories told, uh, you can go to our website and listen to it story by story. You know, if you don't want to listen to a Navy story, you could skip over them. I'm sure some of the Marines will do that. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. I thought I would start with a World War II veteran who used to attend our events quite often, Dick Gardner. Would you mind standing up, Dick? Dick, you were probably there with our very first events in 2008 at the, um, at the Crown Plaza on Fort Couch Road, and I know you've gotten busy with your hospice volunteering and your, um, your work even at the VA, um, but I thought I would just show your picture and have you, boy, you look like you're, what, they took, the Army took you oh, at age 13? I was 13? about 12 there. You're, you look about 12. When was that taken? 1944. Okay. Were you drafted? Yes. I tried to get in, but Mom wouldn't sign for me. You tried to get in early? I graduated at 17. Okay. But I, I hit my birthday on October 2, and I was gone. And where did the Army send you? Well, I went down south for my training, and then a couple of more camps. Uh, when we were f through with our first uh, round of, of activity, uh, we were signed up to go to uh, Europe, to the Battle of the Bulge at that time. Things turned around, so the orders were canceled, and we <clears throat> were put into some more training and sent to the Pacific, which was uh, wonderful because I had an occasion to uh, uh, meet a member of my family in the Philippine Islands. Uh, we broke down twice in the Pacific, and uh, the Navy, after so many days, got us going on a couple of those breakdowns. There were two. By the time we finally got to uh, uh, the Philippines, we were about a week and a half late because we had a drop out of the, uh, out of the convoy. And in talking to Navy personnel later on, uh, I said they left us all alone in the middle of the Pacific with 5,000 soldiers on board. Oh yeah, we didn't want to risk the entire convoy just for one, one ship. So at, at 18 years of old, this was a heck of a feeling. You know? But we finally made it after about a week and a half, and of course had a very easy landing because things are already gone in progress. Most of our troops are already in the, in, in, into the island uh, interior. So we sort of camped along the beach. And um, because of being late, uh, there were, I noticed groups of soldiers all along the beach areas. And a lot of them were kind of on the older side. Um, I mean, how old, like 25? No, 35. 35. Okay. 35. That is old. <laughs> anyway, uh, because of being late, um, we had a chance to, to uh, enjoy ourselves a little bit. And uh, I got hurt falling off a Japanese water truck that we had captured and broke some vertebrae. And while I was in the hospital, 
my commanding officer sent a little machine down called an M209, which was a coating machine. So I learned how to use that while I was uh, recuperating. So I got to learn how to handle radios and walkie-talkies and all the rest of that. But on one occasion, I was fooling around with the walkie-talkie, and I heard a sergeant gardener, and I was only a PFC at that time, so I left my, my station, which was a no-no, and took off and went to each group along the, the uh, beach areas to meet some of these older uh, soldiers and to find this Sergeant Gardner. So after about the fourth or fifth group of men that I had met, I walked up to this little, little guy like myself. He was about 40 years old and he was their first sergeant. They're the guys that run everything. So I said, do you happen to have a Sergeant Gardner in your group here? He turned around and he said, uh, hey Ernie, there's a kid looking for you. Ernie, my dad's name was Ernest. My dad stepped out of this group of soldiers. We hadn't seen each other in about eight or nine years. He went in early. Uh, that's another story. Uh, well, we just stared at each other and then finally embraced. And uh, his men turned around and said, is this your kid? He said, yeah. It was quite a reunion. Uh, he was as brown as a berry. He had been there for a while. But I, I wondered later why the older soldiers, we were all getting ready to invade Japan. And we had maps uh, about that and where my group, under my general, we were to go into the Tokyo Plain, and that was scheduled for the spring of 46. The first group was to go in in the fall of 45. We were expecting one million casualties. That would include both sides. We would have never gotten out of the boats, I'm sure. But my dad would have been part of that. My dad and I hadn't seen each other in about eight years, as I mentioned. And uh, I, I get a chill up my back just thinking about that at this point. But in 70-some years now, I have never come across anyone meeting their dad in a, in a situation like that. I've heard of brothers and brothers, cousins and cousins, but never a father and son. Did you share a drink or something? Bottles came out of everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we had quite a party, and after about two or three hours, he says, you better get your butt back. Because you were AWOL. I was AWOL. Yeah. <laughs> I lost my stripe, but I... You did? You lost a stripe? I lost a stripe. <laughs> but a year later, I, I made sergeant, so it made up for it. Oh, he outranked me. He was a tech sergeant. He was a tech sergeant. So you lost a stripe for going AWOL for seeing your dad, and I guess the Army doesn't care when you say, hey, I hadn't seen my dad in eight or nine years. Right. They didn't care. The guys were bug-eyed. They never saw anything like that. Wow. Quite an experience. Wow. And I enjoy telling that story. Thank you so much, Dick. <laughs> Bert, just come on. Bert used to also come to our... He came to at least one of our events many years ago. You don't speak? Okay. He told me he weighed 140 pounds, so they assigned him the BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle. The gun weighed more than he did. 
How about you, Russell? Russell Miller? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to make any speech, but I would tell you one thing. And I will ask, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, Kevin has instructed me to, when you hold the mic, point it at your chin and grip it tightly. I just want to say it's really a pleasure to be here. This is my first time, and it's really a pleasure to be with all of you veterans uh, that have served, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Maybe next time I'll bring a story. Oh, okay. Bring a story, but I do want to ask you, uh, how did, why did you join the Navy, and when did you join? Well, I joined the Navy in 1943. I did what Dick did. Uh, I had asked, I tried to go in early. I'm glad I didn't make it. It just proves that uh, mothers know more than the kids, because <laughs> she wouldn't let me sign up. But I went in the Navy. I guess I was a selected volunteer. And, uh, and graduated in June and uh, went into the Navy in July. And so spent my time uh, in basically the South Pacific. What ship? LST-942. LST-942. Were you on that? He was oh, nine, George 41. Fries was 941. You pick it up in Boston? Oh, I did too, yeah. Hingham, Massachusetts. Oh. Yeah, but that's where I got mine, Massachusetts. And so, again, I appreciate being here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. Dan, you know, I don't like picking on people who are here for the first time, but what the heck. Dan Gimliano, I know you're here for the first time. And you sent me something in the mail. You were in the 26th Infantry Division, the That's Yankee right. Division. Yeah, I was in the 26th Infantry Division, and uh, that's uh, called the Yankee Division up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, we went overseas, fought with uh, George Patton in four battles, the Battle of Balls, everything. But there's one thing that I could always wonder why I am here today. And that is, I was in the light artillery, and we normally, at nighttime, we would take half the crew would be on duty all night, and the other half is sleeping. So this one night, we never, never woke up to the people sleeping in the morning. But, then, uh, but this time... I don't know what happened. A man, as, as the truck came up to give us uh, our uh, letters and stuff like that at night, they brought a replacement, and the sergeant told him, lay down and go to sleep, and I'll assign you. So anyhow, that's what happened. So this night, it was 5.30 in the morning, and the sergeant woke us up and said, come on, we've got a fire mission. And we were kind of PO'd because he woke us up. We'd never done that for a whole year. And the cloud always uh, done their job. So um, well, after we had the fire mission, we went back. This poor guy, a muzzle burst. Now, if you know what a muzzle burst is, it's, it's a shell blew up, up above us and it, the poor guy that they brought up, we looked at him, his head was almost tore off, and we went back to our tent, and I'm laying there, uh, where I laid, 
and, and the corporal, he was laying, our head, our pillow was shattered. And that was the only time that we ever, ever had to witness anything like that. And I think, why am I here? I don't know. But we had to thank the sergeant. <laughs> thank you, Dan. Yeah. Is Warren here? Warren Timmons? You're somebody else who uh, has came to breakfast years ago, but I haven't seen you in a long time. You came to the Crown Plaza. Make it today. You thought you'd make it today. I appreciate you making it today. That's the ship. I was just a young boy. I was about 19 years old. I became the captain's yeoman. There was a Lieutenant J.G. and me in the office. <laughs> I did all the typing. I, I was one of six brothers that served during World War II. Um, I had three brothers in the Army and three in the Navy. My Army brothers, they were in the Battle of the Bulge and they made it home. My older brother, William, was on an LST. He took, went aboard down in Ambridge, took it over, down the Mississippi and over. And he went in on D-Day, Omaha Beach, and he survived. And me and my younger brother were on ships ready to head for Japan. They were gonna invade Japan in uh, November, but I was on uh, North Island on Labor Day, we're shipping out for Japan. Harry dropped them bombs on the 6th and the 9th, and the war was over on the 15th of August. Thank goodness, he saved so many young people. <laughs> they took all the planes off the ship, and we traveled to the, uh, Subic Bay and Manila, and we brought back hundreds and hundreds of people on our hangar deck on bunks. It was a, a little bit of bad weather outside San Francisco, and the ship is breaking up on the expansion, and they're putting rivets back in as far as fast as they were falling out. That's the only time that I became scared in my life. Well, we finally got into San Francisco and they put our ship into dry dock for a whole month to repair it. And from there, we took the ship down the, uh, through the canal, Norfolk, and we decommissioned the ship in Norfolk, Virginia. Everybody was over the side chipping paint but me. The captain says, you stay here. I was so blessed. <laughs> and they were so teed off at me that I wasn't chipping paint. <laughs> In the Navy, you always have to paint, you know, scrape oh, the Oh, they always did. But I was a yeoman, and I was just 18, 19, 20 years old at the most, and I was fortunate. The typing did a world of good for me. Did you like the Navy? Uh, I did. When I was 18, I got a letter, greetings, 
So they sent me down to the old post office building, and they're always in our birthday suit, and they're hitting you with shots. And then at the end of the line, a guy would say, what would you like, Army, Navy, or Marines? And the guy in front of me said, I'd like to get in the quartermaster corps of the Army. And the guy had a big stamp. He says, Army, you may get it. And I'm thinking Air Force, but I said, no, this guy's going to send me to Germany. He said, what do you want, Army, Navy, or Marines? I said, Navy. The best thing I ever said in my life, volunteering. <laughs> And that's where I ended up. And it was a great way of life. I met some beautiful people. Four beautiful guys from Norman, Oklahoma. Two of them became uh, the yeoman, Admiral Nimitz, on Guam, and one of them on, on the Missouri. He did all the typing for the World War II invasion and also the uh, signing of the treaty. His name was Harvey Mercer, my best friend. What great people they were, good Americans. And there's one, Harvey's still living. He'll be 93, and I'm 91, and I'll be 92 next April. And I thank you for listening to my story. Thank you, Warren, very much. Adrian, Sethi, would you mind standing up? I know you're not a veteran, but... You do, you are from the Heinz History Center, and you're the new, your title is volunteer coordinator? It's similar to that, it's the docent coordinator. A docent coordinator. Yes, so thank you, Todd, for giving me uh, an opportunity to speak. I wanna say hi to everybody, and thank you very much for having me here at the Veterans Breakfast Club. It's really a pleasure being here, meeting many of you, and especially listening to your stories. As Todd said, I am the docent coordinator at the Heinz History Center. I started there eight weeks ago. And I noticed in the volunteer lounge these um, newsletters for the Veterans Breakfast Club. And I had mentioned to Larry Woods right here if he could give me some information, because I said, well, I would love to hear the stories, and I would love to attend. And I would love to also see if there are any veterans who might want to volunteer as docents. Because being a docent is essentially being a storyteller. And the History Center is about our shared past in Pittsburgh and all of our shared pasts. And so if there are any veterans here who might be interested in becoming docents, we provide all of the training. And I am the docent coordinator and I'm pretty flexible with your schedule whenever you'd like to come in and do tours or speak with the public. Um, just let me know. I'm going to leave my contact information here, or if you'd like to um, say hello after today's program, I would love to have the opportunity to speak with you. So just let me know. And you have quite a few docents here today, right? Yes, Carmen we and do. Larry and Walter. We do. You're a docent. Yep. Frank, are you? You should be. <laughs> it, it is, I think that the docents have a really good time. I try to um, really foster a sense of community and um, really have a great time when they're there. So. so you'll be able to hang around here a little bit after the breakfast in case people want to talk to you about it or have questions? Absolutely. I will be here after the breakfast to great. do that. Yep. Thank you so, very much, Adrian. <laughs> yes, Frank. Frank wants me to introduce my father. This is my father, Alan DePastino.
He's a great man, and he served in the, uh, in the Army National Guard. And he has a couple funny stories. My favorite is when he was mistaken for an officer, and some airborne guys saluted him, and he realized he had to get out of there fast when they figured out he was only a private. <laughs> David, would you mind standing up? This is David Routabush. Uh, David, you're here with PA Serves. Correct. And um, if you could point it at your chin sure. and hold it. We've been wondering how to handle all the questions that we get at our breakfasts and just with emails and phone calls when people have veterans have questions about a veteran-related problem or, or want to get connected to veteran services. We always thought it would be great to have somebody here at our breakfast who could answer all the questions that we can't answer. And we do now, and that's you, David. I can't answer all the questions, but... Uh, but you can get can, the answers. I can get the answers. You know how to get the answers. <laughs> and yeah, would you mind telling them about who you are? What, what PA serves is we're a newer company. We, we're through Pittsburgh Mercy. Um, what we do is coordinate services for veterans. I myself is a veteran, and I know it can be tough to find you know, services out there. So what we try to do is we hone everything into one place where you guys can call and if you need any assistance we can find that service for you so like you know a lot of the questions for a home like or navigating the VA or questions things like that we can find the answers for all those questions um, we work directly with about 35 programs um, but we also um, we serve Allegheny Westmoreland and Butler counties but we also try to serve any veteran that calls in and you know we've got calls from Texas for some odd reason um, but we've you know tried to direct them to services near them so what we do our best to to find the services that are closest to you um, you know make it e easy and convenient for you to utilize um, but we also want to find the best services possible so, to help you out you know with a quality of service so um, I have some cards here I'll be here afterwards as well if you have any questions I mean we work with veterans their families um, if you know anybody out there a friend or a family member that needs some assistance just have them call um, you know we'll work our best to uh, you know find the services that is out there for them or what they may need so if anybody here has any question related to you know your veteran status or want to get connected to a service or if you know of anybody, who really should get to connected to a service, please do stop by and introduce yourself to David, and David will take care of you right away. Now, David, you're a veteran. You were in the National Guard? Ar like Army National Guard. Army National yeah, Guard? Yeah, Johnstown, 876 Engineers. And when did you join? Um, 01 to 09. Okay. Yeah. And what did, where did you end up going with them? Um, I only had to do one pretty easy deployment over in Germany. We did uh, force protection over there after 9-11. Um, we did uh, base security in Garmisch Park in Kirchen. And uh, uh, Bad Abling, those are our two stations. Okay, so what did your battalion do? The engineer Engineers, uh, combat engineer, that's what I was. Okay. Yeah, so. And what does a combat engineer do? Uh, we, we blow stuff up, pretty much. <laughs> Build stuff too? We, yeah, okay, the blowing stuff's up better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, David. George, look at that. Would you mind standing up? Okay, let this be a lesson to all of you. I asked George, George emailed to say that he's coming to the breakfast. I got back to him and said, great, you know, I look forward to seeing you there. If you have any photos of yourself in the army, send them to me or bring them to the breakfast. He sent three right away. And I really do invite you to do that. You can email photos to me, or if you don't, you can't email them if they're not digitized. You could just bring them here. Haya, you did it today. And I make copies with my little camera here. I don't need to take the photos with me. I just make copies, and then we could put them up on the screen, and you could either talk about it or not talk about it if you decline. 
but uh, you didn't tell me whether you were going to decline or not talking about it. You're talking whether you want to or not. <laughs> George, that is you, and you sent that picture. I just noticed the patch on the sleeve, and it was totally unfamiliar. So what? where did you serve? That was the second field forces. Um, our location was called Plantation, which was just north of um, part of Long Bend, down south. And it was, was it called Plantation because of the rubber plantations? I have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> um, and you were, were you ROTC? Yes. At CMU? Yes. And why did you join ROTC? Okay, well, I had uh, a father and four uncles who all served in World War II. My dad was in the 79th Infantry Division, so if there's anybody here, I'd like to talk to them if they were in it. In the 79th Infantry Division in World yes. War II? Yeah. And uh, as a student, uh, I thought too many people were getting away with deferments as far as uh, when you graduated. As an engineer, you could probably get a job with a critical skills deferment. I thought I'd do my part and volunteer because I knew pretty much that I probably would end up in Vietnam. What year was that? Uh, I graduated in 1968. Okay, so yeah, that's at the height of the war. Right. How long did it take for them to send you over to Vietnam? Uh, one year. <laughs> one year? Yeah, you, you spent the first year uh, as a second lieutenant, usually uh, some place you know, in the States. I was at Fort Dix. And uh, second uh, year to the date, I was sent over. And what was your job there? What did you do? Over there, I had a couple jobs. One was assistant platoon leader for the uh, HF platoon. I was in the Signal Corps. Okay, and what's HF? Uh, high frequency radio. Okay, high frequency radio platoon. And what they were were a backup radio teletype to uh, different sites. I guess I'll explain a little bit more about second field forces. Uh, they were command and control for uh, all, all the Army in uh, it's called Three Corps, which was in Saigon and uh, a little bit further north. We were a signal battalion, and we had um, communications with 1st uh, Cav, 1st uh, Infantry Division, Ties, uh, the Australians at Nui Dot. 82nd Airborne had a brigade there for a while, and uh, we had people at all these different sites to, to um, relay the... Uh, messages back and forth. I did want to ask you one question I'd like to ask Vietnam vets, and that is, do you remember your first impression arriving in country? Did yes. You? Okay. Uh, we got in about 3 o'clock in the morning, flying over Vietnam. You could see all these little fires. It was all pitch black, but you could see little fires, probably different villages had their own little fire. Well, we could see those, and um, when we landed, an MP came on board and said, okay, if the lights go out, just follow the flashlights and fly, follow the uh, painted line that goes over to a bunker. So, oh boy, what are we getting into now? And uh, stepping off the plane, you can cut the humidity with a knife, smell the jet fuel, you're tired. <laughs> You just want to. So it's a go to sensory assault of the jet fuel and the humidity and the heat. Oh, yeah. And then the treat was uh, we had landed at Benoit and we had to, uh, that was only about a couple miles away from where we were going to go to the 90th uh, replacement battalion. 
Well, they put everybody on the bus here. All the windows are open, but they had screens on them. Thought about that and said, okay, they don't want somebody to toss a grenade into the bus. So we went through this little village of Benoit and the smell was like a sewage treatment plant going through this little village. <laughs> and then we ended up getting to the replacement battalion and they gave you a little uh, talk about what, what you were going to do and set you up with a place that um, bunks that you were going to stay until you uh, got in there. You got selected for where you were going to get shipped. Well, one of the things that uh, happened to me is like the third day there, I guess, I found out I was going to second field forces and I saw there was a little map and it had all the patches on. So I saw this second field force patch. Well then, uh, I saw this warrant officer, he's about 40 or 50, he's been in for a long time. I saw him with his patch on his shoulder and said, hey chief, where's second field forces? See those buildings over there? He said, yeah. He says, that's where you're going. He's just got the best uh, officers club in uh, Vietnam. I helped build it. <laughs> so, uh, then the jeep came and the guys picked me up and took me over to where was this picture taken here i love this picture i'm pretty sure that was up at Fook finn which is where the first cab was located at that time i was a pay officer for that for that month and in my left hand you see a little pouch okay so you were a pay officer does that literally mean you fly there and like pay everybody yes and very popular, I would imagine, a very popular job to have, right? This is probably where I must have my first heart attack. Uh, in that pouch, I, you had pay vouchers for everybody in your company, and plus you had the cash for them. But I'd already dispersed the money within our uh, battalion area. So then we went around to the local sites to, to pay the guys that uh, were in our battalion. And uh, lying... Uh, it put me to sleep. <laughs> the, just the noise, the rotor, and everything like that. And we were up high enough that uh, we weren't probably going to take any arm, small arms fire. Well, I was sitting closest to the door, and they fly with the doors open because you had your door gunners on the side. Well, I had that pay voucher to my right side, and uh, Bob Gonzalez was our uh, crypto warrant officer. He's sitting next to me. I had the pouch right in between us. As we were flying along, I fell asleep. About a half hour later, I woke up. I look over, I don't know, where's that satchel? And that was worth about $50,000. <laughs> You'd still be in jail today. <laughs> well, I, th I thought about this as well. I already, already dispersed maybe 30000 Maybe I could get most of those guys to sign, sign the vouchers that they got their money. Ah, jeez, what's going to happen? We're flying over to these uh, jungles. I said, maybe I should just jump out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I looked around a little bit more, and then I looked down on the floor. Here, Bob had put the pay voucher, or my satchel, down on the floor. <laughs> I was so relieved. I can imagine. Yeah. And then this picture, was this also taken in Vietnam? Yes, this is outside of my uh, hooch. I don't know if you can see my mustache there was pretty light. 
Well, it's lighter now, but... <laughs> but my hair is real dark and it is light. Well, I went up to uh, the PX to buy a camera one day, and in the PX, um, the Vietnamese girls were the uh, salespeople. And the Vietnamese word for lieutenant was Chung Wee. These girls started giggling, and I heard them say Chung Wee, and then they giggled some more. So I said, all right, what, what's going on? I heard you say, oh, no, 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 no. No, you said Chung Wee, and you started laughing. What, what, what's going on? And they got a big kick out of I had a blonde mustache and dark hair. <laughs> had something to make me look a little bit older because I was about 22 or 23. And I wanted to look a little bit older than the, the spec fours that were there. They were 18 or 19. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that was outside of uh, where I uh, spent my nights. Thank you very much, George. And George, your uncle, John, attends our breakfast in Penn Hills. Yes. Did you know? You knew that. Okay. He's been going for years, and he's quite a character. T.J. McGarvey's my neighbor, and he finally talked me into coming. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you came. Thank you. Richard, look, that's you. This is your first breakfast. That's you in the Navy. That's not me. That's Gene Kelly. <laughs> Now, I, you know, I didn't know how you'd feel about this, whether you were going to be willing to share your alter ego with the crowd, but now that you're wearing the hat, I might as well show them all that you're also Smacky the Clown. <laughs> Thank you. Boy, that was a years ago. That was when I first started. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Navy. Yeah, I was just going to say When that. did you join and why did you join the Navy? Well, first of all, I was a, I was a problem child in school, had difficulty learning. And I'm going back to the olden days. And uh, Mom said to me, Dickie, you know, you're, you're having a little problem here, you know. And I think that the best thing for you to do would be join the service. And I really couldn't make up my mind where I wanted to go. And there was a couple of the guys who lived down the street from me that, that were in the Navy, and they were known as the Kowalski brothers. And I sort of liked the, the uniform and everything, and, and I didn't join just because of the uniform, don't get me wrong. But in a way, I'm glad I did, because look at there. You know? <laughs> well, anyway, uh, as you know, I am Smacky the Clown, but that's, that's another story. When I was in, in, in the Navy, I'll never forget when I went into boot camp, okay? I went in very young, first of all. I was only 17, nothing there, okay? So we're standing in inspection. And this lieutenant walks up to me and he says, you shaved this morning, sailor? I said, no, sir. Said, what? You didn't shave this morning? You shave every day in the Navy. I said, sir, I don't shave yet. What was there? Nothing there. So I thought a company commander comes over and he says, he takes me aside and he's like, look, you over. He says, when you're in the Navy, he says, you're going to shave every day. I don't agree if you know or not. Okay. We, get back to, we get back to the barracks. Okay. Everybody gets ready for the next day. They get up in the morning, they get all dressed. I come out, fall into rank. Our commanding officer walked up to me and he says, did you shave this morning? I went, oh my goodness. He says, you didn't shave? He looked at the assistant company commander and says, take him in the head and wash his face. So I go and I wash my face. Sure enough, God be my witness, we go out for inspection. Here comes the same officer, walks up on me, and he says to me, 
you shaved this morning, Sailor? I said, yes, sir, it's a good boy. <laughs> True story. True story. Well, I want to thank Todd. My pleasure to be here. And everybody else, God bless you. And I always have, I'll always end with a story, of course. I was out one day, I'm standing in front of this hardware store, and I had my shirt on, okay? And this lady walks up behind me, and she goes, Smacky, Smacky, Smacky the Clown. I told her, and I said, yeah, honey, that's me. She said, you know what? She's all excited. She says, you know what? This is the first time I ever seen you with your clothes off. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hold on, hold on. Okay, hold, hold on. on. Should I call you Smacky or Richard? I... Smacky. Okay, I'll call you Smacky. People ask me what's my real name. I have to look at my driver's license. <laughs> I got pulled over one time. I'm driving my car. I'm lost. I can't know where I'm going. His police car pulls me over. He walks up, and I'm in a clown costume. He looked up at me, and he says, uh, he said, you're not in trouble or not. And he said, but you went through a stop sign back there, but it was covered by a tree. He said, I've got to see your driver's license. I pulled out, I showed him my ID card. He said, get out of here. <laughs> so, okay. You served on this ship. Yeah, oh, there it is. Home away from home. U.S. tin can seller. Tin can? Okay. Any tin can sellers? Okay, I'm the Lone Ranger here. Yeah, when I was on board ship, I was the ship's barber. Yeah, my job went to your head. <laughs> so, that wasn't over your head, was it? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was, uh, it was some good days and bad, but uh, I was very popular on board ship, you know. You know, being the ship's barber. Did you know I was a big hero on my ship? I saved 350 men. I threw the cook over the side. <laughs> he was a quiz maker. Quiz. Yeah. Well, before I, was on the, before I was on the destroyer, I was on the submarine. I wish you'd cheer up. I was on a submarine, honey. Yeah. I didn't mean to wake you up. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's okay. She's nice clingy. Okay, she had my car. No, anyway, uh, before, I, before they put me on the destroyer, I was on a submarine. They, any submariners? There you go. He knows what a bubble is, don't you? No, anyway, they had to take me off the sub that I was on. I enjoy sleeping where the windows open. <laughs> that was over your head, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm proud to be here, and uh, I'm going to be celebrating in August 50 years of Smacky the Clown. I'm at a point now. Thank you very much. Thank. You. I'm at a point now that when I bleed, it comes out rainbow. <laughs> but the biggest color is blue for Navy. So God bless you, and God bless the United States. And I'm proud to be what I am today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, okay. Friendship Village, your bus is here. A little early, just so you know. Tell them to wait. Tell them to wait. We'll tell them to wait. So you were a submariner. Yes, sir. Tell me, Graham, how did you become a submariner? They always put the big guys on the submarines, and they always have the little guys carry the Browning automatic rifle. <laughs> I'm not really a true submariner. I um, got out of Allegheny College and went to OCS, and this is in the late 50s, Cold War. Last one to get my orders out of OCS because I had to wait for a top secret clearance, and the reason for that was that um, I had to uh, uh, they wanted me to serve as a communications officer and encode and stuff like that. 
So uh, my orders were to uh, go to Com Subpack staff in Pearl Harbor, and I had the grand experience of uh, doing that work at, at Pearl for three years, and and I did did have an opportunity to ride the Nautilus when it came around on its first cruise, which was quite an experience for us because our diesel boats just didn't go very fast and didn't go very deep, but boy, this, this Nautilus, uh, it, it went so fast that it, when, it, when we turned, it, it banked like an airplane. We were really impressed. Uh, that's kind of my story, uh, one, two, three. Thank you very much, Graham. Okay, Ben Wright reports that the bus driver is fine with waiting. So, no, no rush, invite him in, yeah. Where's Chad Riddle? Chad, there you are. Chad has served on our board, and I heard he was coming to this breakfast. And I recently got some pictures of you, and I thought I'd show the pictures. Uh, there's Chad in the Navy. You can see he was an officer. And like, like Smacky the Clown, you also had an alter ego, and that was a hipster slacker there on the right. That was one evening at St. Vincent College. When I show that, everybody says I look like a mafia hitman. <laughs> <laughs> when did you join the Navy and why did you join? I knew you were going to ask that. I joined because I was going to be drafted. I was out one night with my wife-to-be and we ran into a Navy bird dog. What's a bird dog? Bird dog was a guy who was recruiting for the Navy station for a few extra bucks to buy a few beers. And... When I went to talk to the guy, I knew I was going to be drafted because for those of you who remember the draft lottery back in 69 and 70, uh, I was number 54. I was a winner. I knew I was going. And so I joined the Navy on a six-month delay so that I could apply for the officer program. And in January, right after Christmas, I went in I reported to Newport, Rhode Island for Naval Officer Candidate School. I didn't go through ROTC or anything because St. Vincent did not have ROTC. Uh, from there, I went to the New London submarine base. My ship was out to sea. Actually, it was in the, that was my commissioning. Both of those pictures were my uh, commissioning pictures. And just a stupid question, you know, not being a veteran, I don't know the answers to these things. So this is a commissioning picture. You're wearing white, a white uniform. That's called the choker. The choker. What determines whether you wear white or whether you wear blue? On the Navy base, it's probably different elsewhere. They'll send out the notice the uniform of the day is whites, blues, khaki, whatever. And what determines that? How do they make that up? How do they make that decision? Calendar? The calendar. Time of year? So whites are in summer? And the calendar says it, and, but the, whoever's commanding the base, the station, they have the final decision. Okay. It didn't make any difference whether it was cold or hot. You did what you were told. That's exactly right. You're in the Navy now. Yes. <laughs> and you were assigned to this This was ship. a submarine rescue ship. For those people who don't know, in... The days, this is from the 40s, basically up through the 70s, these submarine rescue ships, their mission was, in theory, to bring a submarine up, bring the men out 
if they had a problem. And if you see that diving bell that's on the, the upper left-hand corner, that is the rescue chamber that there's a Don Hall cable. It's basically about a half-inch steel cable. Divers would take it down to the submarine, attach it, and then that would pull itself down, bring six to eight men out at a time to the surface, then go down and do it again. I came out of one of those. We were doing an exercise with a, uh, an Italian submarine. I went down on the submarine and came out through the rescue chamber. Ugh. As anybody here would recognize, when you're in the Navy, when you're young, if you're bored, you'll do anything for a little bit of excitement. <laughs> and what's going on here in these pictures? Well, in these pictures, the one on the lower left, that's called a spud. It's a float. It's like a buoy. And attached to the bottom of that is an anchor, and we would use those to shift the ship into position so it's directly above the submarine. Okay. Up in the, f the upper left-hand corner, if I remember right, that is a torpedo. On occasion, when there was nothing else to do, we would be assigned to be a torpedo target. They were dummy warheads. And okay. we would pick them up when it was done. On the, on the right-hand side, the lower right, that's the rescue chamber, I can't remember if it was going down or coming up, and then the upper right-hand corner is a picture down the fan tail where you're looking at diving operations. Our ship had a full complement of Navy divers, all kinds of high-pressure air, all kinds of special equipment, and, and if anybody has ever seen the movie Men of Honor, do you remember the chief played yeah. by De Niro? Yeah. I knew guys like that. Exactly. Which is why? Describe, describe... The, the character, he was a drunk, he was arrogant, he was obnoxious, and he was a Navy diver. <laughs> and I knew guys like that. But they're great guys, except when they're drunk. <laughs> and how many men were on your ship? We had normally around 80 to 100, and then it was a complement of about five to... No, that's wrong, about six to eight officers. And you were one of the six to eight officers? Yes. And what was your job? I did just about everything except being EXO, which is the executive officer or captain. I did deck officer, I did communications, I did operations, I did assistant engineer. When you're a young guy, they, you look like a young guy, they just let you do the, I was for a while the, called the SLJO. That's for crappy little jobs officer. So you, you do a little bit of everything. Right. For the most part, it was fun. For some parts, it was very boring. Uh, but that was me on board the ship, the lower right, at one time. I normally wasn't in the T-shirt, but it was hot, and our ship did not have air conditioning. The upper left was whenever I was being pinned by my commanding officer as a lieutenant junior grade. This is part of being the SLJO. We had a local second grade class, wanted to get a tour of, the, of a big Navy ship. And so I said, yeah, come on board. And the teacher and assistant teacher on either side of me, and that's the classroom. And I said, yeah, okay. Captain says, I want you to do it. I says, okay. <laughs> Take them all aboard the ship. It was fun. And the kids were excited. And you seem, I mean, just talking to you, you seem to really have enjoyed the Navy. You liked, you liked your, you appreciate your service. For the most time, when I enjoyed it. In fact, when I, when I got out, I had a big interview 
for a job with a big computer company, and the first guy that hired me, he said, how'd you like the Navy? And I wasn't ready for the question, but I said, well, you know, it was a million dollar experience. I had a lot of fun, but it, it's over. Now it's somebody else's turn. And then he took me in to see his boss. His boss asked me the same question, and I gave the same answer. Well, it turned out the guy that hired me was a Naval Academy graduate. And the, his boss was a naval ROTC from the University of Notre Dame. Needless to say, I made the right answer and I got the job. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. But then again, I decided after three and a half years, it's time to get out and move on. I didn't even know who Chuck Knoll was at the time. It was time to get on with my life's work. Thank you very much, Chad. George Herwig. How are you, George? Getting old. You're getting old. We all are. You've told your story before, but it's been quite a while, and I know you... I don't want to get into the first part of my service, because that's... Uh, Why? It was pre, well, it was pretty boring. I, I got a job driving a bus in the, when I first went in. You, well, why did you pick the Coast Guard, first of all? I was going to be drafted, and I went down to the old post office building, and I looked around in the line for the... Uh, Marines was almost clear around the building, and I went up in the Navy, the same thing, two or three lines, and a guy said to me um, in the Navy, uh, well, he said, well, we might get to you tomorrow. We'll put you on a number. I said, oh, no, no. I said, what's that bunch up on the third floor? He said, no, you don't want to go up there. That's a Coast Guard. They don't do anything. I said, that's for me. <laughs> Was this in 1942? Yeah. Early, so shortly yeah. after Pearl yeah. Harbor, you volunteered. Yeah. Yeah, I went up there, and uh, fellow, I was about six in line, and he said, how old are you? And they f found out that I was pretty damn young. And how old said, were you? Uh, I don't know, 18, okay. 18. something like that, neighborhood of. And so uh, I enlisted, and he said, uh, have your stuff ready. You're down to the Penn Station in the morning, 8 o'clock train to New York, and they'll take care of you. A whole bunch of guys will be there. Went to New York. They busted out to, bust us out to Long Island, out to Manhattan Beach. And the following morning, they lined up about 600 guys, and uh, they said, all you guys. Oh, it was cold. It was in November. They said, all you guys that have driver's licenses, step forward. Well, I didn't step forward. I was in the second line. The bosun made come by me, and he says, how come he didn't step forward? You got a driver's license? I said, yeah, I got a driver's license. I said, an old chief told me, don't, don't uh, volunteer for anything, because they'll get you anyway. So he said to me, can you drive that bus over there? I said, sure I can. I never drove a bus in my life before. <laughs> But I worked in the city, downtown Pittsburgh, and uh, I watched these bus drivers, and they, on the left-hand side, when they had to back up, there was a little box and a solenoid there, and they push it up and they push it down into reverse. So I was in business. I did that, and I, the bosun mate, he was, oh, he was impressed with that right off the bat. So I backed it up in between the two yellow blocks. He said, you got a job. So I ran from... Rockaway, Long Island, from Manhattan Beach into uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yards, over the Brooklyn Bridge to Penn Station, over to the West Side Bus Station six times a day for four months. In the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I saw this big, beautiful poster 
of a, a new destroyer. And I said, oh, that's what I want. And so every day I come back to my commanding officer. Incidentally, he was from Pittsburgh. His name was Dick Stabile. Maybe some of you remember the name of the parking lot people, Stabiles. Well, Dick Stabile had a band also. He was a lieutenant commander. And every day I'd come back and I'd sit on the corner of his desk. These guys tell me, he's a lieutenant commander. You can't sit on his desk. I said, he's from Pittsburgh. I know him. So <laughs> I had no respect for officers at that time. I learned a little bit later, though. <clears throat> Finally, uh, he said to me, you, you have your destroyer and you're going to be taking you know, on Friday, your, uh, Saturday morning, you're going back into New York. You'll take a train to Norfolk. Overnight in Norfolk, when the girl took us, they away, took us out, and there was a, a bunch of guys on the truck and the big cruiser there, and some guys got off, and a couple of new destroyers are sitting there, and guys got off, and finally there's two of us left. I said, where in the devil are we going? And a girl says to me, there's your destroyer. I said, what? It was a World War I four-stacker. It was all rusted out. It had just been taken out of mothballs. And the disappointment went clear from the top of me down to my toes because I, I wanted that new, brand-new white destroyer. I only saw it one time. And it wasn't even a destroyer. It was a, the USS Campbell. It was a Coast Guard cutter <laughs> at any rate. I was on that destroyer for uh, about four months. We did two round trips to Murmansk, Russia with convoys. In those two trips, we lost one, we lost one ship, and my destroyer and a, a new destroyer sunk a submarine. They, the devil was, I think it was a 135 or something like that. At any rate, it finally came up, and they blew it all to pieces. And I didn't even know that until two days later, because I was down below at the time. And I, I was one of those lonely soul sailors, a seaman first class. Like a, that's like something like a sergeant, I guess. Any rate, uh, after the two trips, we were sent to Casablanca in Africa. We were going to follow up with some of the groups that were uh, sending Rommel back over into the, the mid, mid part of uh, Africa. But we were too late for that. Now, Casablanca, I'm thinking, Lions, tigers, giraffes, elephants. Boy, I'm going to Africa. We land at the, the docks at Casablanca. It's a big city. Double-deck buses, high buildings, and another disappointment. <laughs> but I got shipped back, and uh, they shipped me from Norfolk to the West Coast, and I was there for a few days. And uh, uh, one thing on the West Coast, I, I have to tell you this. I was assigned to two lieutenants in San Diego. And this first lieutenant said, take the Jeep, go over to this place, you get a case of beer and this bottle of booze, and bring it back. He gave me the money. I said, okay, sure, I bring it back. And down at the end of the dock is this PBM. Never saw one before, had no idea in the world what it was. It's a flying boat. Get on that, and <clears throat> they take it up in the air, and we're up. He said, we're going, we have blocks that we have to fly, and uh, we have to check out what's on the ocean underneath us here and see what's going on. Everything is right. We, we just do blocks. So he said, here, sit in the seat here. I said, in your seat? He said, yeah, I'm sitting in the seat here. He says, I want you to hold these two rails here. 
like a steering wheel, half a steering wheel. He says, I want you to watch this little line here. And you keep watching that line. Keep that line straight. Don't let that line go anywhere else. And I'm at this wheel. I'm soaking wet, scared to death, and I'm, I'm holding this thing for life. And finally, we get to the corner in the time, and I said to him, hey, we're at, the, we're at that time we have to turn now. He comes up, I'm on automatic pilot. <laughs> scared to death and frozen. We did make it back all right, though. And from there, I went to New Orleans. And I just have to interject, George, here. I'm showing a picture. I, I thought you were going to bring this up. Uh, we did a trip in 2011 with 25 World War II vets going to New Orleans to the World War II Museum. We could do a whole breakfast of stories from that trip, as you can imagine. Beautiful trip. Absolutely beautiful trip. It was beautiful. A little Needed crazy. more time. Yeah. <laughs> we almost lost some guys, but that's okay. Um, it turns out they were at the casino. But there, I remember I, I went with you to this place here. Was it the Mint... Was it the, the old mint in New Orleans, it was built back in the 1700s, and a lot of it was uh, for the, uh, uh, well, it was actually a jail underneath, and it had long cells, and that's where they put us. But we weren't <laughs> incarcerated there or anything like that. The cells were open, and that's where we stayed, um, waiting for our ships. Now, these cells were welded open, and they had one cot and a couple of other things I won't mention, and they were dirty. They were not clean. We were waiting for the second floor to be finished so we could go sleep on the second floor. But in the meantime, we... We were in those cells, and I never got to the second floor. I was shipped out before that. But I missed being on a Corvette. I won that, not a Corvette, a, a frigate, uh, the last frigate that was out of there. And they said, well, yours will be the next. And so I got the next one. It was an, a ship built by the Higgins Company for the Army. It was a, an all-steel ship. And it had two holds in it, and it was a, an island boat. Uh, it, was, it, it was a coastal boat for the Army. Well, the Army couldn't man it, was so they the gave ship? it to the I'm Navy. I'm sorry, George, to interrupt you. Was this the ship you're talking about? Uh, that's my ship, the 184, okay. yeah. It was a, a small ship. It was 200 and, uh, 228 foot long, and I think it had a 17 or 18 inch uh, or, or foot uh, beam on it, and we had two holds on it. We could hold well. We could hold a lot of a lot of stuff on it, and uh, that's the ship we got in New Orleans. And uh, the electricians in New Orleans had put all the electrical equipment on the ship. They went to the, these people that put all this on the ship were actually graduating from kindergarten, and they went to first grade. <laughs> because nothing ever worked electrically on that ship. We had to be towed through the Panama Canal. And finally we got to San Diego and this electrician said, where did you get this electrical? Well, we told them in New Orleans. Westinghouse completely took everything out of the ship and redid it. We never ever had another problem with electric uh, all through the th three years I was in the Pacific. 
Three years in the Pacific. Well, three years less one month. <laughs> wow. Wait. I, I, I listen to some of these fellows, younger guys, and they say, well, um, oh, I missed Christmas last year. And I said, no, no, I won't say it. Okay. No stuff. <laughs> I missed three in a row and four in a row, and I never got home for those. But uh, I, some of you guys I know have done, done that also. And were you dropping off ammunition and equipment? The, our first trip out of San Diego, well, it was an, another little area. We had 280,000 pounds of liquid nitroglycerin in five-gallon cans. And uh, nice, clean stuff. Cans were really nice. I, they, were, they were, yeah. We had three brand-new Packards painted gray in the front hold on top of this nitroglycerin. And on the second hold, we had four bulldozers, uh, a big big uh, machine of some sort, and uh, about six of those army trucks, the six by sixes, they were labeled for the Navy, and they were everything was to go to Australia. When we first found out this was nitroglycerin, we're all back on the fantail. And the skipper come back and he says, if this goes, he said, the fantail goes along with it, so let's get back to work. So <laughs> one time in the islands, uh, I forget what island it was. You name the island, and, and I, I've been there for one reason or another, because most of the time we hauled ammunition, and uh, we, had an, we had two LCVPs. If you don't know what they are, I'll tell you. It's a landing craft. It's big enough to hold one six-by-six six truck, 30 men, or a bunch of ammunition. All you Navy guys and a lot of Army guys know what an LCVP is. And uh, we salvaged two of those for our ship because what we got in New Orleans, I don't think they would have sold them anywhere. They were wooden boats that didn't go anywhere. So we got rid of them in a hurry. We used one for target practice even. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but, uh, the Pacific, uh, I was on a, on a, a 50 caliber gun. My buddy was Joe was on a 50 caliber uh, on the other side above the bridge. We had one 40 millimeter on the stern and a 20 millimeter on the bow. We were ready for everything. And we did get a little bit. Uh, we lost six guys on strafings. And uh, the toughest thing is, of course, to bury guys that you know, bury them at sea. That's a tough one. The, the one time we had the bad strafings was uh, a, a Zeke. It was like a, a, well, it was a fighter plane. And that they came in at us right on right on the ocean. They were right just above the ocean. We didn't even see them coming in. The second one was a twin-engine Japanese bomber. It was a Betty. And it went up in the air and came back around towards the front. Our front man had the 20 millimeter. He was from Orange, Texas, and Boudreaux. And he aimed in on this twin-engine. Joe on the left-hand side and myself with 20 or 50 calibers. And uh, I, I won't say much more about it except when we left San Diego, our skipper said, if we encounter anything, we are not shooting down people. We are shooting down machines. And that's more or less the way we thought about it. And Joe and I cut that 
that bomber right in half. I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I should, because uh, my, my wife always told me, don't, don't tell that story anywhere. So, but I had to today for the, maybe the last time. But I have another one, and one day you're going to let me do it. Uh, but we, I, I was on that, on that thing for uh, just a month less, uh, three years. Uh, I was at Okinawa. I was at Iwo Jima dropping ammunition off. Now, I always say I was there, but I wasn't there because I was on this LCVP with ammunition, and I would take the ammunition up to the shoreline, drop my lid in the front. The guys, the Army guys or the Marines would take the ammunition off. I'd put the lid back up and back off away I went. So I was there, but I wasn't there. How's that? That's <laughs> and we, we, uh, we were up at a place called Aparry. It was... Uh, the top part of um, the Philippines, it was uh, the very tip of, the, of Luzon, and uh, it was a, um, uh, the groups of people that uh, had, had the disease, they were all wrapped in rags and things like Leper colony. Lepers. I couldn't, I couldn't remember that. It was a leper colony up there. The Japanese were scared to death of the colony, so they went and never went anywhere near it. We took those people, food and clothing up there, and they told us, as long as you don't have physical contact, it's perfectly all right. So we dropped them off up there. The Navy then told us one time when, when we were up there, you anchor off Luzon, about uh, a mile and a half off Luzon, and you will stay there until we tell you to return. We had no idea in the world what was going on. They said, we want you to stay there for reaction. Well, they had dropped a bomb in Japan, and they wanted to know if there was any reaction in the air or in the water from whatever went on. We never felt anything. We, we were like 600 miles away, and we never felt anything from that. And it was, I think, three weeks later, we found out why we were up there. And, uh, George, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to show some pictures of you. Who the heck is that? <laughs> I was never that young. <laughs> I'm four months away from 94. How's that? <laughs> and I like this one, Philippines Beer Party. Oh, that was a beer party in the Philippines, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, uh, that was at Panama. Uh, I was right in back behind the young lady. How about that? <laughs> I, I look at some of these pictures of myself and I think to myself, I could never have been that young. <laughs> never. <laughs> Thank you so much, George, for sharing Thank your you story guys. today. Thank you. We always seem to run out of time. and We like to close with God Bless America. And Walt, you will lead us in God Bless America. Okay, Walt, take it away. George was just talking, and he says he was on every island in the South Pacific. I was wondering if he was ever on Trinidad. Well, I was on the island in Trinidad when Japan surrendered. From Chacacacheri to Monasau, native girls all dance and smile. Make soldier happy on his leave. Make every day like New Year's Eve. Drinking rum and Coca-Cola. Go down for cool manna, both mother and daughter. 
working for the Yankee dollar. <laughs> that, yeah, maybe should run. Go, God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the prairies, through the ocean, white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. Go forth in peace, my friends, and I'll see you the next time. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com.